You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Bren Hill. Bren Hill is an authentic cowboy who writes Western songs from his first-hand ranching experiences. He tried the Nashville songwriting scene, but he missed the wide-open spaces of the rural West. So he returned to Utah. He writes songs about real characters and experiences of the current ranch life, which still operates in a traditional cowboy way in spite of the modernization of the rest of the world. Bren marries his genuine songwriting with the modern musicianship of world-class Nashville performers to deliver a contemporary vision of the modern cowboy life. I'm here with Bren Hill. And Bren, we're going to talk about a handful of your songs. Um, let's start with Call You Cowboy. Yeah. Love to talk about that song. It's a song that kind of launched me into my career, I think. 
as a young songwriter, it was a song that I, I got to where I wanted to go as a writer. You know, back then, I'm not sure that I had all the tools and the know-how to get there. So I just think it was, you know, about as organic an effort as I could probably muster in those days. But wanted to be a cowboy, and I uh, was a much better singer-songwriter than a cowboy. I'd gone to cowboy poetry gatherings all around the country, and, you know, my parents encouraged me. I had English teachers that encouraged me, and still I just sort of wanted to be a better horseman and roper than than a writer. But uh, my buddy invited me up to play cowboy. He was working for a guy by the name of Frank Bowman, and his name was Jason Van Tassel. He was kind of a I guess a local cowboy legend masterpiece. He was, you know, high school rodeo star and had a lot of girls in love with him. And he's just an all around good guy. Taught me a lot about cattle, about horses, and taught me that I'm not a cowboy. <laughs> had a great time. You know, I had a great time working for, for Frank and for Jason. And, you know, Jason came to me at the end of that uh, season. He said, I've got a job offer at one of the Simplot ranches. I'm really considering it, but uh, he says my parents, his mom's a successful business woman and his dad very successful. And he says they want me to go to school and, you know, become a doctor or lawyer or something and, you know, do this on the side. And he says, I just want a cowboy. And he also had a girlfriend at the time who wanted to get married and I always tell people the moral of the story is never go to a songwriter and ask them what you should do with your life, <laughs> right? Because I wrote that song. I started it literally watching a rainstorm go by. I was under a run-in shed holding the horse. Kind of had the first verse and chorus written, and I drove down Weber Canyon here. Back home, I was a college student in those days, and I think I wrote the rest on a little notepad or something, and literally it just fell out. You know, I got the guitar in my hands, and it just... It just all meshed together. And over the years, like I say, it's um, some level of commercial success, about as successful, I think, as a cowboy song can be. But uh, it's been rated in a couple of top 50 listings of cowboy songs, you know, and alongside of like, you know, Big Iron on My Hip and Tumbling Tumbleweeds and things like that. And so, you know, I never, never had that intention, but. Uh, I cease to be amazed at uh, the life that a song can take and where it goes. And, you know, I just forwarded you a picture, Doug, of Jason and I a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Jason's been all over the country. He has a master's degree. and uh, In cowboying? Yeah. Yeah. He, he got that from the King Ranch. Graduated from Utah State University. Cowboyed all over the country. He was a VP on a ranch in Eastern Oregon. Went down, got his master's, went to the Parker Ranch in Hawaii. Now he's up in Sundance or uh, Eastern Wyoming somewhere, but... Uh, Some pretty prominent ranches. Yeah, just uh, doing what he loves and and very good at it. He's got a beautiful family, and that picture was just he and I a couple of weeks ago. So what's this song about? You know, the song's about growing up and finding your way in the world. As a guy who... I wanted to be a cowboy. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I wrote this song for my friend who did know what he wanted to do. It was a different path. And, you know, in it, I think I wove all these sort of messages and sort of the story behind the story there is take the risk, follow your dreams, you know, make yourself 
useful to the world and become good at what you love and make a contribution and make people's lives better. You know, Jason has done all those things and I hope in turn, maybe I've done a little of that with the music, but yeah, I look back at that and I think that song is about growing up. So you were thinking about cowboying, being a cowboy, and what is it that you were not good at, whereas you had this other natural talent for writing songs and singing them and playing guitar and the other things you do? Yeah. Performing, entertaining. You had that, and what were you not good at, at natural, cowboying? Natural horsemanship uh-huh. is not one of my uh, gifts. It's just not in me. You know, I have to learn it. And even then, I'm, I'm slow at it. Whereas, you know, guys that I look up to and respect and have, you know, cowboyed alongside of just seem to be natural horsemen, guys that rope pretty well, probably a little more athletic than I am. And the call is to others to do that. And I love it. You know, I still do it. I still get out with my friends and try to cowboy and certainly fall and spring, you know, do that kind of work with them and take part in it. But, uh, you know, I've learned the art of staying out of the way, too, over the years. Not uh, making a nuisance of myself, but, you know, the natural gift for me was to be able to uh, look into the heart and soul of a cowboy and articulate what it is that they feel from their perspective. And I think, Doug, there's, you know, a little bit of cowboy in everybody. I think everybody wants to understand what it is about the West that makes it such a mystical indomitable, iconic place where uh, cowboys and other iconic creatures live, you know, wildlife. And we just seem to have uh, something very special and mystical here in the West. You and I live here. We know that. People don't get the opportunity to live here, want to connect with it. You know, I've always tried to bridge that gap between the people who live it and love it and the people who don't get to live it, but still love it. So on Call You Cowboy, uh, how'd you do it in the recording studio? You have steel guitar on that? Or? Yeah, it's, um, that's me playing acoustic. You know, I came up with that little goofy riff. It's a, you know, it's a G chord with a run down it, uh, runs down to a D. I figured that out sitting on the couch probably, you know, all those lyrics are swirling around in my head. It's simple. I've played that for some people who say, that's all that is, you know, once I show it to them. <laughs> in the studio, it was me playing acoustic guitar and, and uh, Ryan Tilby playing dobro and a little bit of upright bass and, you know, a little background vocal. There's, there's just not much to it. You know, the story is sort of what it is. We tried to keep it real and capture the essence of, of what that song is in the studio and just keep it sparse. Do you remember the first time you played that in public? You know, I don't remember the first time I played it in public, but I do remember the first time I played it for Jason Van Tassel. And uh, yeah, it was it was in the <clears throat> my basement, my parents' house, and and uh, he kind of looked up with uh, tears in his eyes and said, "Man, you get it." As a songwriter and an artist, I don't know if you can put a price tag on that. You know, when you can hit someone, you know, right in the guts and. Uh, you know, you know that that they know you get it. So much of songwriting is fueled from adolescence and wanting to do something different than your parents wanted you to do. My dad's an accountant, tax accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 
How did he react when you told him I was going to be a singer songwriter? Uh, they've been very supportive, you know, and, and it's been very good to have an accountant. But yeah, I think they would have, you know, accountants are all about stability. You know, the arts are not a stable livelihood. It's just uh, kind of constant madness. And, you know, after 25 years of being in it, you figure out a way to, you know, level things out and take some of that advice that you got from the accountant, you know, to uh, to do that. But but this was you telling your really good friend, Jason, you should be a cowboy. This yeah. is what you love. And I know your parents want you to be something different, but yeah. you follow your heart, right? Yeah. You knew his parents. Great people. Yeah, I love his parents. <laughs> and how did they react to the whole thing? You giving Jason advice that was against their wishes as a teenager. Yeah, his dad is has got such a personality. He showed up at a, he came to a concert one time and he says, the only question I've got is, why am I the bad guy here? You know, <laughs> I didn't mean for him to be the bad guy, you know. He's such a great guy, but I think his parents have been supportive of him. And, and I think, you know, after all these years, they've seen that he's been very successful in what he's wanted to do. And his family has been able to take part in his work. You know, his kids can go out and ride with him. And his wife is a better hand than he is. Wow. She's really, really talented, so... Call you cowboy. What else do we want to say on this one? I feel like I have to thank somebody for this song because it's just been, you know, so defining for me as an artist. I guess God gave me this song, but uh, I, I I thank Jason Van Tassel. I thank all the guys like him that do what they do uh, just because they hear the call in their heart, you know, to do it. It's guys like that that keep me doing what I do. So, yeah, I feel like I... You know, even though I penned this song for those guys, I, I feel like I have to thank them for the inspiration. Where do you put this in your set list when you play? You know, this is a show closer uh -huh. most of the time uh -huh. these days. And uh, it's crazy that, you know, all these years later, you start playing this song and people will clap in the introduction or mouth the words, you know, and and people will come up and they'll say that song is about my son or my nephew or my dad or whatever, you know, and. It's just amazing that people can hear a piece of music and relate it to their lives. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com. For more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Your songs have a sense of place that's in the mountains, on the range, in the yeah. West. Yeah. This one is Call You Cowboy. So it's, were you driving down Weber Canyon and saying, I'm not going to be a cowboy? And like, I call my friend a cowboy. Yeah. I'll call you the cowboy, but, or were you trying to say, call me a cowboy? No, I'll tell no, you what. You were realizing you weren't a cowboy. You yeah. Knew, you knew it as you're driving down Weber Canyon? I or? think as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old guy, I probably had hopes that I'd still be able to become one, you know, but in the context of that song, Jason Van Tassel's father wanted him to become a businessman, and here he was just ready to throw what he, little belongings he had in his truck and trailer, and 
drive across the country. I think at one point, you know, his, something came up about his dad had called him a drifter. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I call him, I call him a cowboy. Uh-huh. So you know, it's, it's about just, Jason, nothing yeah. to do with your own story. I don't think so. You yeah, know, no, I, that's fine. Yeah. I'm a guy who uh, looks at some of these tunes and uh, after all these years, I, I do see myself in these songs, you know, but I think these songs are at their best and I'm at my best as a writer and a creative artist when, you know, in my mind, I'm giving this message to somebody who needs it at the time. I've got a few songs that, you know, just kind of fell out, fell on the paper. How You Heal is one of them. Cowboy's eyes Like a thunderhead From a clear blue sky It was a long hard winter And a cold late spring Now it's time to heal Where the grass turns green At the Brandon Pen Beneath the snowy peak On the reservoir road Otter Creek Swing a leg on a bronc Feel the mountain wind Build a big wide loop Let the fun begin And that's how you heal A cowboy's heart Drag a slick new calf To the Brandon fire Thank the Lord above that you're where you are That's how you heal Cowboys How You Heal is a song that came about fairly uh, organically as well. I, You know, another ranch family from Randolph and Lake Town and that whole Randolph Valley is kind of the Utah ranching capital and up there these guys are great hands, great cowboys, Eight brothers of one family in the All Ranch, the Weston family. One of my cowboy heroes called me up and he said, you know, he's a guy that never has a bad day. He says, we've had a bad day. He said, my cousin, my uncle's youngest son, uh, was thrown from a truck and was killed in an accident. And uh, would you come up here and sing at the funeral? And there I went, you know, there's the whole Weston family in the little Randolph Chapel. And, you know, I... I sang at the funeral service, and, and it was just so hard to see them in in that kind of tragedy and the wake of that tragedy, you know, because they are just such an iconic family. You know, these guys ride bucking horses for fun. <laughs> and uh, I, I get on a horse, and I think, man, I hope he doesn't crow hop, you know. If his head drops at all, I'm sort of tense, you know. But these guys do it for fun, you know, and these are generations that have lived that way, and they put so much, so much beef into the marketplace. You know, they're just such great people. They invited me the next spring to come to the Brandon. And literally it was the guys that have always been there and Terrell Weston would have been there. And I imagine in my heart that he was there in spirit. In a way, I guess I was sort of trying to fill the empty boots and unable to do so uh, from a you know, the standpoint of I'm, I just 
I'm not a Terrell. I'm not Terrell Weston. You know, I'm yeah. not a Weston. But riding out with those guys uh, to go, you know, gather a pasture of calves and bring them back and brand them is a day I'd, I'll never forget. It was a perfect day of branding. And uh, what's a perfect day of branding? You know, is uh, the weather was just incredible. There was uh, snow on the peaks. It was probably in the 60s. Not much dust. I probably uh, caught half the time, you know, and uh, the Westons catch all the time. Uh-huh. But, 100%. Know, the, yeah, they're 100%. And there was no big wrecks or anything. And I mean, it was just in the camaraderie. It was good lunch, you know. They had me play a few tunes and it was just one of those kind of magical days, you know. And I think for them, it was it was a hard time, you know. It was them coming back to tradition um, after losing a, a family member in tragedy. There was smiles and laughter that day, but there was also something missing there, you know, and there was hopefully some healing there, you know, and watching them turn their product out on green spring grass, wearing their brand was uh, something I'll, I'll never forget. You know, that's another song. I literally left the corrals that day and had that song halfway written before I got home and just kind of feel like it, it sort of fell in my lap, you know. How you heal. Yeah. There's a sympathy card to the Weston family. You know, I, I think so, but I think more than, than a sympathy card, I think it's, uh, I think they will heal. It's both you will move forward. You will carry on this family brand. There will always be pain in your heart. I've lost people in tragedy and, and I know that those are wounds that don't ever really completely heal. You know, you learn to live with them, so to speak. You know, we're in the middle of the process of them doing that. And I think that song came as encouragement for them through that difficult time. And, and so, yeah, probably it was a bit of a sympathy card, but... Uh, but more than that. Yeah, a little bit more. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe words of hope that uh, there is a spring for every season. And you mentioned Lord in that. So, yeah, you know, there's a religious spirituality to the song. Absolutely. You know, these are deeply spiritual people. They're connected to the land and connected to their livestock. And yeah, I think, you know, what was apparent to me that day is, uh, you know, the presence of presence of angels, you know, riding around us, you know, it was, it was palpable as much as the dust in the air, you know, you could just feel that, uh, uh, Terrell was there. Hmm. So talk to me about the uh, production process. You wrote the song in one sitting? Yeah. Really, uh, those songs come probably in a matter of 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. You know, you flesh them out, you arrange them. You know, there's maybe some little riff or something on the guitar that leads you sort of into the next level. It's almost like, you know, you feel these um, uh, gates open and you just kind of pass through them as a as an artist, you know. There's a, there's a pathway for this stuff to go down, and sometimes it just comes together very easily, meshes it together very nicely, you know. That's one of those songs, you know. In the studio, uh, recorded that in Nashville. Great multi instrumentalist, legendary guy by the name of Jonathan Yudkin, really kind of co-produced that record. Another guy by the name of uh, J.T. Cornflaws, guitar player guys I've recorded with and worked with in the studio and they kind of understand, you know, my vision and 
try to take a really pure approach to it and leave the essence of the song there, not overstep their bounds, I think, as uh, instrumentalists. And J.T. Kornfloss came up with that little riff on the gut string guitar, and Yudkin had that, you know, haunting thing he was doing on the violin, and I just, I swear I think we that was a two or maybe a one or two take song. Wow. Yeah. It just came together so easily. How You Heal was the first record that I really felt confident as a musician, as an instrumentalist, to sit there and play with these guys, have a click track going, you know, wired up the way we are in front of a mic with my guitar in my hand and playing and singing. And these are live takes, you know, and it took me however many records to uh, get to the point where I felt like I could comfortably and confidently do that. And I'll always think of How You Heal as the record that, um, you know, allowed me to to step forward and comfortably sit with these world-class players and not feel like a total klutz, you know? You remember what studio it was in Nashville? Yeah, it was at County Q. You know, there's so many studios like that down there, but uh, this is a great little studio. They kind of a powerhouse, crank out a lot of great stuff there, and it's a small, small place that you can almost have eye contact with everybody, and it was a great place to do a kind of a live record. So you're a Western songwriter, and yeah. Nashville is country. Yeah. I, I'm still trying to figure out differences um, other, you know, than the, always, other than the audience. Yeah. <laughs> I always say that, uh, you know, country music is about a woman and, and cowboy music is about a horse. And that, that's not entirely true, <laughs> but uh, it's different. You got to live this this stuff really and experience it to write about it, you know, from a firsthand perspective. And, you know, there was certainly a time, I think, when I felt pressure to become a country singer. Obviously, there was some, there was some pull from that industry to do so, and it was not a good fit for me. Why is that? You know, I sat down in some of those co-writing sessions with those guys, and, you know, we get the music row pick list, and they tell you, you got to write a two-and-a-half-minute two-step for, you know, whoever uh, needs it or a four-minute love ballad or whatever. And, you know, you exchange your ideas and maybe you know this guy you're writing with, maybe you don't. Maybe there's three of you, four of you, and uh, you try to write something, write a hit. You know, that's what they all want is a hit. In those days, a hit's worth a quarter of a million bucks, split however many ways between publishing and songwriters. A lot of those guys were career writers, and I learned the craft of songwriting from them, I think. How to arrange, how to intro, how to support ideas, you know, how to bring a song to an apex, to a climax. Certainly, you know, there's some craftsmanship there, and there's some songsmiths in Nashville. I just couldn't write about things that I hadn't experienced or didn't touch me, and, you know, everything, I think, as far as country music goes in those days was all about... Uh, you know, the South, Dixieland will rise again. I love the South. My, half my family's from there. But uh, I'm a Westerner. You know, I remember artists like Marty Robbins. And even in those days, you know, in the 90s, uh, George Strait and Garth Brooks were singing rodeo songs still. And so I, I felt like, you know, if anything, there would be a space in that genre for somebody from the Rocky Mountain West. But uh, I was in this to be a creator and to be a first-hand creator from real experience. There's so many 
great things that Nashville lends to the creation of music and the music industry. I still think it's the recording epicenter of the world, you know, where technology and uh, uh, artists, you know, and art, when I say artists, I mean multi-instrumentalists, engineers, producers come together like nowhere else on the earth, you know. The system for recording that they refined, I think, through the through the 80s and 90s, uh, did wonders for recorded music across the board, all, all genres. When I, I was making a record there in 2004 at Ocean Way, and uh, Megadeth was recording in the, <laughs> in the A studio. I was in the B studio. Megadeth was in the A studio. There were times we'd have to wait, you know, for a, like a, we were taking a mandolin track or something, and we'd have to wait till they quit their uh, electric guitar solo or their drum solo or whatever. They were loud? They were loud. They were and so they were loud, loud, even in the soundproof studio? They were loud, and, and they uh, did a lot of stuff outside in the hall that uh, thankfully didn't carry in either. But uh, <laughs> um, That's a different crowd. That's a different crowd, you know? But but they went to Nashville to make a record because yeah, yeah. that was such a great old studio, you know, an old church that converted into a studio down there on Music Row and... There's just so many things, you know, from Nashville that, that I think we have to uh, give credit where credit is due to that industry. But, you know, the music that I that I write and uh, the way of life that I cherish, you know, is, is out here in the Rocky Mountain West, and I got to live it to write about it. to Selway. Yeah. This is a different kind of song for you. I think so. You know, Ode to Selway came about, you know, in the midst of a music career, but I think it was, it was a song that took a lot of years for me to write. And it took a lot of trips to Northern Idaho for me to write. I went to uh, the Payette National Forest when I was 12 years old with my dad on a big pack trip. Man, it was such a great time. There was guys on that trip that'll never be there again. It was the first time I ever heard Ian Tyson. We had a, a cassette copy. You and I have talked about this uh, a minute ago, but a cassette copy, it said cowboyography, handwritten, that somebody had made from, you know, a tape that they, a cassette tape that they bought 
at a Neon Tyson concert in Wendover. <laughs> there was a battery-powered Sony Walkman with a four-inch speaker on it. Was that four inches? Maybe three. And uh, we sat there and listened to Ian Tyson around the fire. And it set me on the course of my life. You know, these songs were just, they were what I wanted to say. You know, as an artist, it was Western imagery. And a song like the Ballad of Claude Dallas, you know, was I knew that that stuff was going on. I'd heard that story. I knew some of these places he was singing about. And, and I just felt like, you know, I'd finally found some a mentor that could sort of give me a model for what I wanted to do. And so part of Ode to Selway is where I started and why I started doing what I, you know, I do. You know, later in life, I got up into uh, South Fork of the Clearwater and Clearwater National Forest. And uh, we went into the headwaters of the Selway and up Fog Mountain, looked over into the Bitterroot. I've been in the Bitterroot Valley looking on the other side seen those old Selway crags, you know, and the tops of the Bitterroot Mountains and, you know, looked at that vast, never been into the Selway Bitterroot, but uh, I've, I've certainly looked into there and, you know, heard Elk Bugle and Wolves Howl and it's a mystic place. My son, you know, went through cancer in uh, 2008. He was two and a half years old. He, he had brain and spinal cancer and it was such a crazy time for us. We were kind of glued to the hospital for about 14 months and they were glued to our house for a few years. You know, the only, I felt kind of bad if I left, you know, to go play gigs, but I had to play gigs to earn money. You know, I just hated to be away from home. And then all of a sudden things were kind of better and uh, my son's health was better and it was okay for me to, to leave for a while, you know, and I went, you know, back up to Northern Idaho and back in the woods and you know, hit the Elk City Wagon Road and kind of got lost in the Selway Wilderness. And, uh, man, it was, it was so therapeutic. You know, I felt so, I felt, like I say, guilty for leaving, but, uh, but I needed some reprieve also from, from what we had been going through. And, uh, man, I found it, you know, I found it in there and in a place that I'd been going all my life. And it was almost like I fell back in love with it all over again. And, in fact, I just was up in that country last week, but uh, still love that Northern Idaho country. And I think, you know, Ode is musical tribute to, so it's a musical tribute to the Selway Bitterroot Forest. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll get folks to realize what a gem that is up there. And for, you know, years to come, a uh, place like that that we can preserve and enjoy for many generations. Most people haven't been there. Yeah. What's it like? Tell, describe what Selway you know, it's the deepest, darkest forest in North America kind of feel, you know, it, it there's on the north sides of the hills, uh, it holds the moisture in, it's colder there on the south sides of the hills, you know, it's kind of that dry forest and, you know, you can get all of that by hiking a mile. You can almost be in two different ecosystems, you know, on the left side of the hill that faces north, you're uh, talking about black bears and white-tailed deer. On the right side, you're talking about mule deer and elk, you know. It's just such a mystical place. Those rivers are so deep from the top. Uh, when you're looking down into the south fork of the Clearwater, you can see, and I'm. this is, uh, what is it, a mile, mile and a half down there? You can see the rocks <laughs> in the river. It's that clear. And one of the lines in that song, when you see those crystal waters, you will never be the same. 
the realization that there is something that pure and untouched left, you know, in this modern world is part of what inspired that song. It's a mystical place. So tell me about the production process. And they will actually finish telling me about the writing process. It took longer. And I like to ask songwriters, how do you know when a song is done? Yeah. You know, for me, uh, knowing when a song is over is uh, has always been fairly easy simply because I try to uh, arrange these things as I write them and arrange them in a way that presents them, I think, uh, fairly commercially. Some people sort of wince when I say that word commercial, but we are trying to sell this stuff after all, you know? There's a way to arrange this stuff so that you can present an idea to a listener, support it, bring it to an apex with an ultimate sort of payout to them, and then, and then let them go. You know, music is an intangible piece of art. It's there for a while, and you're lost in it, and then all of a sudden it's over. Look for ways to not give that listener too much, because I want them to come back. You know, I want them to uh, continually want to come back, and I, I don't want to overfeed them. Ode to Selway is a song that, like I say, took me a long time to write, simply because, uh, you know, I, I think that part of the world and uh, the experiences I've had there, I needed a little bit of time in my life, a little maturity, a little heartache, to help me realize how special that experience is up there, how special that place is, how unique it is. You know, so in a way, that song took me many years to write. When it came to actually fleshing it out and putting it on paper, probably didn't take all that long, you know. I went kind of a 1-4 running bass line there, which is actually a G-sus to a C-sus chord. <laughs> it's not sophisticated by any means. Mostly there would be a 1-5 you know, alternating bass line, and this was a 1-4. So it made it feel very suspended, gave it some grit. And especially when we got in the studio, you know, and, and J.T. Kornfloss fired up his electric and Jonathan Yudkin pulled out a banjo. You know, we listened to it, and it was great. There was that uh, heavy, you know, driving kick drum and snare and gave the song the edge that I wanted it to have. You know, I felt like when it was coming out that this is kind of a rocking tune. I want to say something boldly here about a place that I love and about that country. That country is not for the faint of heart by any means. And we were sitting around listening to it, and old Yudkin stands up, and he's like, I got just the thing. And he goes in and pulls out of it his Native American flute. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh, come on, you know. And it just, you know, my heart melted. I still, you know, I think... My wife and I, who was who was there when the song, she that was the first record she ever got to witness in the studio going down. And uh, I think we still get chills when we hear the intro to, to Ode to Selway, and it was something that I hope, you know, all the listeners would get. Certainly as a songwriter, I felt like I'd successfully reinvented myself a little bit, which is uh, very <laughs> reassuring, I guess. <laughs> I think it's important. Yeah, because you know, we get older and yeah, can't write the same song over yeah. and over again, right? Right, absolutely. Have you ever been to Selway in the wintertime? Never been dead of winter. I've been when it's uh, 
when it snowed. I've been, you know, late November, actually December. This year, I hope to uh, be up there in the dead of winter. I was at Grand Teton on Labor Day at the top of the Jackson Hole, and it started snowing and lightning. Mm. And it was like September 3rd, and I was like, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'd never seen both snow and lightning at the same time. Because they don't usually occur together. Yeah. You know, lightning is with the rain, but yeah. it was kind of right at that crossover point. And uh, we ran as a group tree to tree to get back to the tram mm. from the top of Jackson Hole down. But, the, you know, the weather at those northern climbs yeah. can change in a second and be you know, dangerous at times. Oh, yeah. It's you like know, you said, it's not for the faint of heart. That country can eat you alive. You know, you can slip and fall on the... Selway River breaks and fall forever, you know, and I played Ode to Selway at a funeral for a hunting guide that uh, rolled down into the river and never came out, you know, that uh, lost his life in the Selway River. That country is not for the faint of heart. It's claimed many lives, and uh, certainly the way to go in there is uh, with a whole lot of respect for, for where you're headed, but that tribute is all about all of the things that that country is, the beautiful and the harsh. Ode to Selway is a reminder that we have neighbors and friends in north of us there in Idaho that uh, need our tourism dollars. Idaho is such an amazing place. I mean, it's one of my favorite places on the planet. I've always hoped that people would hear that song and, and uh, want to go see that country. Go see it if you haven't. I'm gonna. This old house has a chill in every room It won't warm up no matter what I do I couldn't be much colder if I lived on the moon My heart turns gray as ash With every picture that I burn Pictures in the fire Members of love gone wrong. Yeah, these pictures in the fire burn away, but they're not gone. This may or may not apply to you, it doesn't apply to every songwriter, but is there any on-the-shelf song that you've written, sort of Nashville style, that you've always thought, this would be perfect for this voice to sing, besides yourself. Yeah. I wrote a song with Costas, who's a... Uh, Hall of Famer. Hall of Famer, yeah. Called Pitch- Recent Hall of Famer. Yeah. I was at Hall that. Were you? Yeah. yeah, there you go. We got together one time, we wrote a song called Pictures in the Fire. I've always thought that a sultry female voice would would do it justice and maybe make a hit out of it. It's been recorded one time by a fine artist from Pinedale by the name of Jared Rogerson. He's a friend of mine. And, but yeah, I've always wanted to hear a girl sing that song. What's the sultry female voice? Ah, uh, you know, I'm trying to think here. Uh, Nora Jones. Nora Jones. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a Nora Jones song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what's it called again? Pictures in the Fire. Pictures in the Fire. You and Costas wrote yeah. this song, and yeah. it's a perfect Nora Jones song. I don't know if it's a perfect, I think it'd be a stretch for, but uh, 
She likes to stretch. I think she could brand it. Yeah. Just that uh, slow kind of sultry jazzy thing I think would be very cool. So I met Costas at the, yeah. at the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame induction ceremony where he was inducted with Dwight Yoakam and Larry Gatling and he'd just been inducted and he was walking to the restroom and I waited till he got out of the restroom and, and I introduced myself and handed him my card to see if he would want to have his backstory songs yeah. recorded. You know, he's a crazy cat. Oh man, let me tell you. You know, he lives in a building in Belgrade, Montana, and bought one of these old historic buildings down on Main Street. I don't know if I should say that, but uh, you wouldn't find him anyway. But he loves guitars, loves Gibson guitars, and I don't know what he was working on, but he said, you got to come back. And I drove all the way up there to write with him. I had another gig in Spearfish, South Dakota. So I'm going to spend a day writing with Costas. I get there... You know, I leave here at dark 30 and get there at 10 or whatever. And he tells me to come back. I'm thinking, man. So then I go back. He says, we we got to eat something. So we go to this bar and have a hamburger, you know. And we're not really talking. You know, we're just sort of chewing. Finally, we go back. We go out on this uh, back patio that he has there. And he starts cleaning his grill. I said, so should we write a song maybe today? And he says, tell me your ideas. Kind of gruff. So I go, you know, I'm thinking, okay. So I bring out the old idea book, you know, and I start throwing ideas at him. Most of these are, you know, hooks, lyrical hooks. And I'd say something, you know, and he said, ah, no, no, that's not any good. No, no. And so finally I said, pictures in the fire. And he stops. He turns around and looks at me over his shoulder. He says, that could be something. And he keeps cleaning his crap. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? okay, let's, uh, let's fire it up, you know. It must have been another hour, you know, the sun's about to go down. He walks over, we sit in a couple of chairs, and we write this song, Pictures in the Fire, in about 20 minutes. And, uh, yeah, I've never recorded it. I, I did have a friend that recorded it, but, uh, you know, we never wrote together again. But a few years ago, I called him, you know, I hadn't talked to him, and he said, oh, man, how he was really kind and cordial and really nice. And He's gentleman. How I was doing, and... You know, thank me for remembering to call him. And when Jared wanted to record that, you know, I had to get a release from him. So he was really, really nice. Asked me about how Ian Tyson was doing. And I know he has a ton of respect for Tyson, you know. He's a monster talent, but a uh, very eccentric guy. Yeah, very eccentric. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was an interesting acceptance speech at the at the event. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. I don't know how a character like that gets attracted to Nashville, but he's not the only character in Nashville. Oh man. It's like, it's like a magnet for, the, for characters, you yeah. know, and awesome storytellers, awesome story and awesome songwriters yeah. and awesome musicians. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that whole skill set is full of characters, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but he's one of them. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so one of them. But yeah, so many of those writers have stories behind them and just came from all walks of life. And a lot of them are very eccentric and some of them aren't very eccentric at all. But, uh, you know, I think of guys like Will Rambo, who were just phenomenal live performers, you know, phenomenal writers and guys that could get up with a guitar and just mesmerize you, you know. I wrote a song with Bruce Boughton. He's the head of a musician's union for many years. We wrote One Hand in the Riggin'. And that's the song that I have that's probably been recorded the most. 
Chris Ledoux was going to record it, and he ended up passing away. And so Western Underground put it on their Unbridled CD, which was the first record they came out with after Chris Ledoux passed away. And yeah, Bruce Bouton and I, we sat down, and that's another song we wrote in about 20 minutes. And so there, there's some talented people. I've been the beneficiary of meeting many of them and, you know, learning the craft of songwriting from from the likes of Costas. Well, let's do this Costas song, if we may. Just have a, another song we talk about, I've, if that's I've okay. I've never recorded it, yeah. So tell me, what's it about? It's basically a guy that is uh, burning pictures of him and his lost love. This old house has a chill in every room and it won't warm up no matter what I do. Couldn't be much colder if I lived on the moon. My heart turns gray as ash with every picture that I burn. And there's pictures in the fire, fading embers of a love gone wrong. Pictures in the fire burn away, but they're not gone. Yeah, it's just, you know, a guy trying to trying to burn his memories but realizes that he can't. It's a divorce story? <laughs> or or I've a widow been, or a widow story. Is I've it, never which been one? divorced. Uh when I Well it doesn't have to be personal. Well, when, I, when I wrote that song with Costa. <laughs> yeah, it's a co write. He maybe he brought that to the song. He had just been through a divorce. <laughs> okay. So, so and I've never thought of that before, Doug, but you may be onto something there. It wasn't a divorce story. The pictures yeah. in the fire. Like, why do you burn pictures of a loved one? Yeah. Like, yeah. Must have been. A widow, maybe, who can't yeah. get, get over it. You yeah. Know, you know, seeing your deceased spouse, you know. It's a really cool kind of a backbeat, uh, you know, sort of a Neil Young feeling kind of a back hard second beat song. And I should record it. I've f never felt like I've been the artist that would fit it well. I'd love to hear a girl sing. We're going to get Nora to do it. Yeah, We're so. going to put this out there, and she is going to record your song for you, yours and Costas' song. I, I would play it for her over the phone so she could hear the... That'd be the best demo I could give, right? <laughs> okay. Well, there will be no demo on the website. But if you want to send us a demo, we'll put it on. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Bren Hill. <laughs> 